Jeff's turn. Oh. Oh, wait, you don't need that. Testing. Testing one, two. Testing one, two. All right. Hey, uh, is it on? You never are supposed to do this, by the way. Like, tap a mic. Um, so it's a total punk rock thing to do. Hey, uh, uh, today I'm wearing a Black Hawa coffee hoodie that's white. And I said, this is me getting this hoodie. We're representing what the Buckleys are up to. That is a direct fruit of your, your guys' efforts in Tanzania as we were doing microenterprise development and helping people to flourish in the name of Jesus Christ. And now Doug is representing their coffee, the fruits of their labors here. And it's best, and I'm a big light roast guy, and it's the best light roast I've had in years. But when I, they gave this to me for my 51st birthday, I still wear hoodies. I love them. And I promised myself I would not spill coffee on it. And I did today, but uh, Lindy made a good point. Oh, that's probably meant to be there because it's a coffee hoodie. So this is, this is intentional. It's actually, it's not really, I didn't really dribble. It was screened on. So there, um, I'm not exactly gonna make the preachers and sneakers vlog. Unless they start, unless they start focusing on orthopedic hoka shoes for people with plantar fasciitis, right? All right. Anyway, welcome to Central Vineyard, and as uh, you know, we are going through the thrilling, ever so thrilling genealogy of Jesus Christ, and actually it is because when people heard the genealogy, they remembered the stories, and the stories were definitely not PG rated. I mean, there is so much scandal in the lineage of Jesus. It really helps us know if, who, who thinks they've got a lot of kind of scandal and embarrassment in their family background somewhere or other. Anyone? Anyone? Well, Jesus can relate to you. Jesus can relate to you. And so message of that is don't ever be ashamed of where you came from. Be enthusiastic about where Jesus is taking you. Amen? We do a lineage that looks to the future. And uh, I've actually got notes today. So today we're talking about Rehoboam who basically, this person single-handedly destroyed Israel. Well, let me say, if, let's say someone came into America and caused a division where 80% of America seceded and left America and we were left with uh, Pennsylvania and Rhode Island. You would say, okay, that was the year that America ended. The United States ended, right? So uh, uh, now uh, two of the tribes got to retain the naming rights and say as Judah and they but and they got to carry on the cultural practices of Israel even though the ten nations that seceded still were called Israel but those nations their days were numbered and there were some pretty tragic things that happened in the onslaught of this but uh, today specifically uh, I want to talk about big picture ancient Near East geopolitics and how that affects how we relate to our families and our friends and people in our community at an interpersonal level. And it is possible to connect large geopolitical situations to even your marriage. And, we're, and hopefully I will uh, make that clear to you. But Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. Solomon started out good, ended badly. Uh, he was considered the wisest person, but knowing, being wise and living according to the wisdom you have are two different things. And Solomon was more probably guided by uh, materialism and uh, let's say uh, 
probably the most extraordinary example of toxic masculinity we've ever seen in human history based on how many concubines he had. All right, so, so Solomon is, uh, didn't end well, but I love how the scriptures show us that we can learn from people about the good parts of their life. And uh, uh, John Wimber used to call it swallow the meat and spit out the bones, stealing one of Jesus' metaphors. You know, you can, you can, there's a lot of good things you can learn from a lot of bad people because a broken clock is right twice a day, right? So anyway, I'm going to read some Bible, but first I want to give you a verse to just hold in the front of your head when I'm preaching. And this is a verse I call the apex of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, as soon as we get kings entered into the mix, it's basically a tragedy, 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 all right? And we have prophets who are called to speak truth primarily to the kings throughout that. And the prophets are specifically always talking about you're oppressing the poor, you're doing this. And a lot of times we read that as written to individuals. It was written to the nation and the dictator that led that nation as well as... By the way, uh, how many good dictators have there been in world history? None. No good dictators in world history. What is a king? Now, now obviously, we have ornamental kings, like God bless Queen Elizabeth, the rest her soul. Um, she was queen, but parliament's the real deal, right? I mean, they've got some, you know, England is really good to keep their royal family in place to generate tourist revenue. But frankly, it's not, it, it's not at the G8 summit that you get Queen Elizabeth coming in there with her retinue and everything. It's the prime ministers, right? So, yeah, so that doesn't really count is a royal dictatorship, but we live in a world that has a history of either royal dictatorships, dictator dictatorships, or democracies that actually function like dictatorships because they just skin themselves as a democracy, but they got an oligarchy that puts the people in charge, like, and that we've seen that on the global stage quite a bit lately. So here's the verse you've got to keep in your head. Micah 6.8. Oh man, or I'll say, oh human, what has God required of you but to do justice? First, we've got some kinetic action. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk with humility. And these things are inextricably linked because generally you can't be merciful if you're prideful. Because prideful people have to see themselves in one way or another better than someone else, which precludes the idea, ability to have mercy. And it's hard to be generous towards people in need if you think they deserve, being, they deserve their status of being in need because they didn't try hard enough. So if you don't fall in love with mercy, how are you gonna do justice? So these things are like, it's like you can't separate cardio and pulmonary. You can't separate breathing from the heart. What's more important, your lungs or your heart? Well, they're both. I mean, of course we separate them because it's a lot to be a pulmonologist and a cardiologist and all that stuff. And we only have brain cans that can fit so many, uh, you know, so many eggs of knowledge in one pan, right? So we have to separate the pans of knowledge. But uh, justice, mercy, humility are inextricably linked. And the opposite of justice, mercy, and humility is being a king. The opposite, because uh, Israel had this kind of 
system where they were governed by someone who was of the people, by the people, for the people, that lived in the same housing development as everyone else, that ate the, got food at the same grocery store, and you know had to put their pants, the robes on one leg at a time. All right, so that was, uh, but every other nation had a king, and if you go to Egyptian mythology or uh, political uh, paradigm, the king was a representative of God or God. You know, in the Roman currency under Tiberius, it said, Caesar is Curios uh, Esoter. Caesar is my Lord and Savior. By the way, you know, whenever they say Lord and Savior in the Bible, that was illegal. That was an act of seditious behavior, nonviolent seditious behavior. That's, that's the only kind I ever advocate. Uh, uh, but they. Uh, Caesar is Lord and Savior, they purport to be because the reason why a king has a castle, do you know why kings have castles, Vincent? To protect themselves, yeah, a big part was protect themselves, but generally if people got as far as the castle, the king's days were numbered. So they would have walls and they would surround themselves with poor people who could die first. Kind of a rude thing to do. But the king, um, kings have castles because the castle is a temple of worship of the king. Kings wear vestments and crowns just like a priest or something would wear them because kings are meant to be worshiped, all right? And so I wanna start out is the repudiation of all dictatorship or uh, unmerciful leanings is Micah 6 eight. Do justice, love mercy, walk in humility, mic drop, and guess who finally did that? Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the vocation of Israel and reversed the damage of the dictators. And even now, Jesus wants to reverse the damage of dictators and even when the dictator is mean. He wants to invite us to do justice, love, mercy, and walk with humility. So, um, Samuel, I'm gonna rewind. We didn't read this before. I wanna give you a quick rant where Samuel describes what it is like to live under a dictator a, or a royal figurehead or a king. And this is true today. Even if someone, they have fake elections for a ruler, if they function like a dictator, this uh, falls into place. Um, but they said, give us a king to lead us. And then this upsets Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as king. So God is telling Samuel, in asking for a king, they're saying, I'm not a king. You can't have two kings. And without God, if you call anyone else king, God is not king. Um, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that now they are doing this to you. So the other thing Samuel says is to subscribe to a king or a dictatorship to, to, to honor that. And that listen, I, I, I know many people have many loved ones who've lived under dictatorship. And that doesn't mean they don't have to obey the rules and stop from getting killed or thrown into prison, but they don't pay homage to a dictator. They don't wear t-shirts about the dictator or wanna be leader or put signs in their yard. Sometimes they're forced to put pictures up in public places. We've seen a lot of that in certain nations that will go unnamed. But now listen to them. This is what the Lord says. Warn them solemnly. Let them know that the king who reigns over them will claim his rights. 
And Samuel told the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said this, rant warning. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim in his rights. He will take away your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. He's talking about human shields. Some of you will sign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. And others to plow his ground and to reap his harvest. And still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks. And, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with the king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered him. Listen to them. Give him a king. Here's a picture of God. Now, we hear all this judgment of what happens if you want a king. And here's the judgment of God right here in a nutshell. And there's some passages in Jeremiah that make this very clear. God is not Zeus throwing, throwing lightning bolts on people. Judgment is always wrapped up as a consequence to the natural consequence of sin. And ju the most judgmental thing is this. Let them do what they want to do. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis said there's two kinds of people. There's people that say to God, thy will be done. And there's uh, people that God says to them, your will be done. So um, this uh, disaster with Rehoboam in Chronicles and Kings, I'm reading the Chronicles version because it's a little bit shorter. So... Uh, Right, right now, Israel was barely being held together. And if, if Solomon was not a genius, Israel already would have broken apart because there's a, guy, a gentleman, Jeroboam, pretty bad dude. Uh, by the way, when we talk, there's not bad guys and good guys in the Bible. There's bad and worser in the Bible a lot of times. And uh, Jeroboam uh, is, is kind of leading this revolt. And Rehoboam inherits this place that's beginning to fray at the edges. So Rehoboam went to Shechem. This is Chronicles 1, 10, 1 through 19. Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard this, he was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent Jeroboam and all of Israel went to Rehoboam. And this is what they said. Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, come back to me in three days. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if you will be kind to these people and please them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servant. But Rehoboam rejected the advice that the elders gave him, and he consulted with his young men who had grown up with him and who 
were serving with him. He asked them, what's your advice? How should we answer these people saying, lighten the yoke the Father has put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him replied, the people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them this, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will make it heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So, I'll just leave it there. And he did that. And Israel got torn in two. Ten tribes went with Jeroboam, two were remaining. Um, the, they basically culturally excluded the ten tribes from being able to have visas to come worship in Jerusalem. So Jeroboam, to appease his people, kicked back on one of uh, 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 Moses' brother's old tried and true methods, and he built a golden calf. He said, okay, I'm gonna start my own fertility cult. You can worship this animal and still get your worship mojo on, and uh, it's okay that we can't go worship. So they were excluded from the anchor of their cultural heritage, which was the communion of Israel uh, worshiping the God who cannot be captured in some lame, graven image. And, you know, as fertility cults and different things you do, generally a lot of other stuff, and we thought Israel was bad before they split, but we start introducing fertility rights, and then what follows that oftentimes is human sacrifice, institutionalized uh, rape, other things like that. It's, it's horrifying. And eventually Israel gets taken over by the Assyrians. People say, what happened to the 10 lost tribes of Israel? And there's one idea that both, uh, you know, Dan Brown wrote the Da Vinci Code and a lot of white supremacist groups talk about that the 10 lost tribes of Israel became Europeans. And the, the lost tribes of Israel are white people. And so white people are still God's chosen people up and above everyone else. It's called Anglo-Israelism. Have you ever heard that idea? The old conspiracy theory is really tied up with a lot of the Grail mythology, which is great if it's just mythology and good Monty Python movies. But if you start taking it seriously, you know, it's, a lot of damage is done by Whitey in the name of Anglo-Israelism. Here's what really happened. It was a people that lost their true north. They weren't able to worship in Jerusalem. They weren't able to worship the one true God. And then they start doing this fertility cult malarkey. And then um, they finally upset Assyria. And Assyria basically is like this. We're going to make your men slaves. We're going to marry your wives, make babies with them. We're going to so demoralize your nation that there is not a single bit of your culture left intact. And the idea is in the same way there we have descendants of countless uh, First Nations, uh, Native American peoples, where maybe they're actual, maybe you have um, some of your genetic background are First Nations, Indigenous, Native American, Indian folk. And it might be from tribes that don't even exist anymore. That is what assimilation does. Assimilation is the idea, we're one big melting pot, which means you get to lose your distinction. And the Bible is so against assimilation. The Bible says every tribe, tongue, and nation in, in unspoken but intrinsic within that statement, past, present, and future. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship before the throne of God, which means God's not going to reverse Babel. He ends up liking multiple languages. He ends up, and I'm pretty sure it probably has to do with cuisine. 
right? Can you imagine in the new heavens and new earth, all the amazing food we've never had because the people group who made that food got assimilated. I'm, I'm just talking about this is going to, I mean, this isn't, this is going to put to shame any culinary experience we've ever had. That's why uh, uh, the kingdom of God is described as a banquet. Mm -mm -mm. And uh, so this happens. So they were, they were disappeared. Their culture was just erased. And they were intermarried with other groups. And there, there isn't a hidden ten tribes of Israel. So we have two tribes left under Rehoboam. And that's where the lineage of Christ goes through. Uh, to that point. But I wanted to make a couple of points about Rehoboam uh, in the idea of kings in general because this applies to us in our cultural moment right now. Alright? Um, first of all, there's no such thing as a good king. There's no such thing as a good dictator. By the way, I have a side note. I actually heard this in eighth grade taught as being an anti-taxation passage and taxes are evil and abolish the federal government and blah 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 you know i heard this at a christian school from one teacher didn't represent the whole school but the teacher and let me tell you this what the king took was not the taxes for road highways toilets that can flush and you know uh uh schooling for people with developmental disabilities from through the mrdd that was not what these taxes were. These were a king's lifestyle is lavish. And how do you think? Like, he's got to feed his 86 concubines, not to mention all his wives. He's got to have gold and bling for all of them in a lavish palace. This was about the rich and powerful oppressing the poor. This is not about escaping taxes so we don't have, you know, people to put out fires when... Uh, Jeff had succumbs to his pyromaniac urges. So this is not an anti-tax passage. This is an anti-oppression. And one way that makes that clear is over and 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 over in the prophets, they're saying, don't oppress the poor. And you know, if we read this through our individualistic eyes, we're thinking, I can't oppress the poor, I'm poor. You know, half of Israel, more than half was poor. Why is this saying? They were subscribers to a dictatorship that made people poor. They were collective members of a poverty-making machine, which is what kingdoms do. Kingdoms build poverty. All right? So this is actually a passage of how foolish it is to ignore mercy. How foolish it is to ignore mercy. And you notice that Rehoboam started out good. He didn't do a knee-jerk reaction. He said, check back three days later. He didn't say, off with his head! He said, well, well, let me check. And then he does another thing. He talks to older, wise people who this isn't their first rodeo. And can you imagine Solomon's advisors? What an awful job. It's like Solomon, they, they're coming for their board meeting, and Solomon goes, oh, by the way, here's my 40 new wives. What do you think? And they're like, hey, the people are kind of restless. What are you doing? People are fomenting rebellion. He goes, yeah, I need another wing for my castle to accommodate all my harem. You know, it's like these guys probably behind the scenes were struggling to hold the nation together. Then Rehoboam comes along. They say, well, Rehoboam isn't, you know, he may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but at least he doesn't think he's the wisest person in the world. So uh, maybe we can influence him and towards mercy. In 
So they received an admonition for mercy and ignored it. And guys, brothers and sisters, Jesus people, we have all received an admonition of mercy and we live in a culture that defaults to judgment. And this is not a left-right deal. This is not a fundamentalist progressive issue. This is a human issue. We all have received a charge to be merciful towards the other. And our default is to be judgmental. Now, we see that the main influencers over Rehoboam's life were his cronies. And his friends moved him, maybe even beyond what he would have defaulted to. They moved him towards this violent, threatening rhetoric. When he says, I'm going to scourge you with scorpions, he means you speak out against the king, you are going to be disappeared. You will, you will be sent away. If you publicly go against the king, you will be imprisoned. You know, scourging with scorpions, I and mean, that's, that's kind of a pretty threatening thing to do to say at your inauguration celebration. Guys, in Christian, non-Christian, listen, uh, in our country, uh, the word Christian doesn't mean as much because there's a cultural Christianity. There's a cultural Christianity where uh, if you have a whole Old Testament is how bad it is to have kings, look forward to Jesus, the wounded healer. And you have any national church of any nation that advocates violence in climbing the ladder at the expense of other people, which that's almost every nation, right? And they claim to be a Christian nation, then you know that version of Christianity is false. And innumerable acts of violence have been done in the name of countries that would claim to be a Christian nation, right? Um, right now, it's, it's like, uh, you know, during the Revolutionary War, we had a, a Christian nation and a Christian wannabe nation. During the Civil War, we had both sides claiming to be Christian. Uh, during, you know, we have uh, Orthodox believers in Ukraine and Russia throughout there. And it's law. It's cultural. So the one thing is, don't ever let cultural Christianity inform your faith in Jesus who transcends culture. Do not let cultural Christianity ever inform. And here's how you recognize cultural Christianity. There isn't mercy. There isn't mercy. It may have gentle rhetoric, but listen, the kinder, general, gentler folks in our culture struggle with mercy as well. And this is something that we're coming up to the holidays and stuff. It's something we struggle with. I, uh, here, uh, here's in a nutshell what I believe about politics. I'll give you like a little parable and you're going to be able to tell it's my parable because it's, a, it's kind of coarse. But imagine if uh, we're in the city of Columbus and our infrastructure is failing and our sewage system doesn't work. And the sewage system cannot accommodate all the human waste that goes to the system. And we're voting on a new mayor, and each mayor has a different plan. One mayor says, we're going to have to reroute 6,000 pounds of human waste and deposit in every person's backyard in order to alleviate. That's enough, you can home compost it. We're gonna put 6,000 pounds of human waste in your yard, and you just need to put up with it until we can catch up. And then there's another candidate for mayor that says, oh, hold up, that, that's crazy. We're only, we only need to put 1,000 pounds of human waste into your yard. I've got it worked out with my engineers. So you're voting between 6,000 pounds of human waste in your yard or 1,000 pounds of human waste in your yard. 
That is what it is to vote in the United States. You vote for the less, least crap. Now listen, I vote, I, I hold my nose and I say, I try to think, under whose reign will the least people get killed? And it's actually strange algebra because we don't exactly have, we've never had a ruler of our nation that is in line with the values of the kingdom. So to me, it's like lessening the body count, not voting for the best thing. So guys, I'm not saying don't vote, don't be passionate about issues and stuff. Just recognize you're voting between 6,000 pounds of dookie or 1,000 pounds of dookie. Amen? And, uh, And Kelly is working, the polls know every. I'm a roster judge. You're a roster judge. Well, that's the only kind of judging you're allowed to do, okay? All right, amen. So, here's what I want to say about this, is how we can be Rehoboam. Is we live in a culture, I, I am from the culture that invented cancel culture. All right, I was a part of the invention of modern day cancel culture. Hello, my name is Jeff Cannell. And the way that happened is I was part of a, a fundamentalist a group of Christians who did love Jesus. I, don't, I would argue they probably didn't know how lovable Jesus was. Because the Jesus I believe in is really like the Jesus I read in the Gospels, who is an immensely compelling person. Um, I had more of a guilt-shame-based view of Christianity back then. But I remember the last temptation of Christ came out. You know, the most boring Martin Scorsese film ever, right? And, and Christians wanted signed petitions to ban it. So all these Christians wanted to ban free speech. And it was the best marketing program that movie could have ever received. Because if you, you know, don't think of pink elephants. Then people are going to think of pink elephants. So my, me and my fundamentalist brethren helped market The Last Temptation of Christ and help it get much more viewers than it actually would. Now, Peter Gabriel did an amazing soundtrack for it, by the way. So if you, that's actually a redeeming quality of the movie. You know, Willem Dafoe made a much better Green Goblin than he did Jesus Christ, Son of the Living God. All right? So the idea was, come therefore and be separate. And the idea was, if you associate with someone who associates with someone you disagree with, then even indirectly, you're approving, and we always, the fruitful, fruitless deeds of darkness. You're approving of the fruitless deeds of darkness. And we would say things like, God can never even countenance to look at sin. I said, Jesus has got a PhD in looking at sin. Look at who he hung out with. Not only because Jesus was good at looking at sin, he was good at inviting them over for dinner, breaking bread. He would feed them. I mean, he outdid Dan the Baker. I mean, 5,000 people with awesome bread. I mean, Jesus, wow. So Jesus pursued people. And the question is, what group should he have distanced himself? Because among his followers were far right-winger extremists. Simon the Zealot. His name, another way to say that is Simon the Terrorist or Simon the Freedom Fighter. You know, he was the guy that was part of guerrilla efforts to try to kill the Roman oppressors and provoke, uh, basically, the wrath of God to destroy the entirety of Rome. And then you have Matthew, who, instead of, uh, we have Matthew, who, instead of trying to provoke people to overthrow the government, bought a franchise, of a an oppression franchise, where they would pay the taxes 
to support Caesar's lavish royal lifestyle, much like Rehoboam. All right, so Jesus got the whole, like, there was one group of people that weren't represented among the apostles of Jesus, and that were the Essenes, because the Essenes don't join anyone. They're, they're the ultimate separates. They canceled the rest of the world, stayed in a monastery. So, so, so Jesus, like, I'm sure he may even, you know, the unknown stories of Jesus, maybe he called the scene and they said, not listening, not listening. You know, so, but every other political group was recommended, was welcomed into Jesus' deal. But guys, we have a nation that's polarized along political lines, and it's polarized over real significant issues that matter to Jesus Christ as king. And depending on who you are, you may have differing opinions of what party has a thousand pounds of dookie versus what party has six thousand pounds of dookie or maybe you think it's 50 50 dookie all around all right but let me tell you every member of every rally of every place you go is a soul that is precious to jesus and worthy of his care and dignity and to do justice love mercy and walk humbly you can't be a warrior for justice without humility and mercy Justice always must encompass mercy and humility, or it is not justice. It's just policy. Justice. And um, I make an effort to hang out with people who I think, uh, I hang out with people who think I'm crazy for being a Christian. All right. I try to do quite a bit, or just think that, well, well you're, you're just the only Christian that isn't a jerk that I know. And I'm like, you know what? You're throwing all the Asian and brown Christians over the rest of the world under a bus, and that's a form of white supremacy. You know, to, 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 to judge the church on American evangelicalism is to say white supremacy is going to guide my perceptions. All right? Because most of the church is not that. Most of the church is not that. In fact, most evangelicals are not white. All right? Most evangelicals are not white. They're not American, and they could, all right? So think of that when we feel discouraged. I, 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 this is kind of cognitive therapy for me. I just repeat this over and over because I get discouraged about what I see in the news. But I was hanging out with a couple of my friends, and these friends, uh, they are extremely afraid. And keep in mind, I don't like any party, all right? So I'm not promoting anyone here and that. I just vote for the lowest body count, and I could be, hope I'm right. But they're talking about how frightened they are. They, they were talking about, man, I won't even go to your neighborhood, Jeff, without having at least three guns with me, two in the car and a couple clips. I talked to them and said, you know, they're so terrified someone's going to take away their guns that they have an arsenal. And they also said, it's just hard to follow Jesus because our world is just gone to such great chaos and everything is it's as bad as it's ever been. And I'm like, come on, it, would you tell me that if I were black, that it's bad as it's ever been when I could have been lynched? You know, would you, I mean, it, it's really bad, like, you mean when, when, when should we go back to when women weren't allowed to vote? But my thing is, I, I don't debate politics with my friends at all. I say, listen, can we talk about Jesus? Because Jesus says fear not over and over. The early, only reason we're talking about Jesus right now is because the early church didn't sell out to Caesar or to the Zealots. 
the reason we're here today, central thing you're talking about Jesus is because Christians love their enemies. But I've, ha I've talked to a number of Christian brothers and sisters who are saying we're not going to do Thanksgiving with our relatives because they voted for fill in the blank. Guys, you may, you'll, no one ever wins a political argument. And that maybe that's hyperbole. You don't win a political argument, but plenty of people will follow the trans political Jesus who is going to institute policies of human flourishing where the line lays down with the lamb and the swords and the plowshares and lots of banquets. All right? Let's stand. And I want to exhort you guys is love your family. And one way to engage differences is you can do it the, uh, like Rehoboam's friends and just eschew mercy. You can just be a part of one deal. You know, I'm going to start you a scorpion. Or you can lighten the burden. You can be graceful. And I know this is a little bit of a stretch, but it is the dichotomy. I'm actually going to have you guys come forward for communion today. Just go, go over there. Go over there. No, no. Um, what, what I want to say is, can we have some prayer ministry people here? Um, as we enter in, and I'm hitting this early because you're making holiday plans and other things like that, is th think of Christ over cancel. Christ over cancel. How is Jesus giving you an opportunity? And by the way, that doesn't mean go into an abusive situation, all right? I always want to put that caveat. That doesn't mean a lot of people think to follow Jesus means to torture yourself and put yourself in dangerous, unsafe positions. No. But I would argue that someone being crazy in your mind isn't always dangerous to you. So what I want to ask us as a church is what does, what does it mean for us to be the kind of friends that move people towards mercy? So I want to ask you guys to be socially inappropriate as a whole. My friends, I want to have a relationship with you guys where if you see me being unmerciful, Instead of pile on the on-mercy wagon, you say, hey, do you think there's a way you could have more empathy and love that person? Let's have awkward conversations, right? Where let's, it, let's get in each other's face about mercy. Let's love the other. Let's make a thing that we actually get into each other's business. That's, we need to be a community of kindness. And that doesn't mean fluffy, duffy, everything, flowers, rainbows, and unicorns. A community of kindness is a community that speaks truth. So as we head into another set of elections, further polarizing area, we get to follow the king who was and is to, is to come, and we can have justice fueled by mercy and humility. So I want you guys to come up and get communion. And this act of receiving communion is saying we're unified. And we commune over this love the other, love our enemies, Love our ideological sparring partners, just like the early church did. And if you have any kind of painful family drama going on right now in your family, or you are nervous, or you're feeling a sense of rejection, we want to pray for you. By the way, we want to pray for anything. But if you need prayer from Jesus to face difficult family relationships, come forward for communion, stay forward prayer. Jesus Christ. On the night he was betrayed, it was that Passover, he took the bread and he broke it after giving thanks. He said, this is my body broken for you. Let's take the bread.
In the same way after the supper, he took the cup. Said, this cup is new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And remembrance is not, guys, remembrance isn't nostalgia. Remembrance is remembering Jesus is in us and through us. Amen? God bless you, Central Vineyard. You are a radiant bride. You guys radiate the love of Jesus. And I'm, when I talk about loving the other, I'm, I'm most of the time catching you guys in the process of doing just that. God bless you.